sharper iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded few in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, July 7th, we are studying Psalm 25. In today's text, King David prays that the Lord would lead him in the truth as he patiently waits and asks for deliverance. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to share and study in God's Word again. Pastor Andrews, as we get started today, talk to us a little bit in general about the Psalms. How do we approach this book? How do we read Psalms as Christians? The Psalms, written over about a thousand years, I mean, some of them are are significantly early and some of them are post-exile. David wrote about half of them, but they're the hymnal for the Old Testament people of God. As you think of having a hymnal in your congregation, as you pull it out of the pew, you open it up to the back to the hymns, this was their hymnal. They would sing these hymns, they had many of them memorized, or many of the people would, and you could use these in song, yes, also in prayer, just like you can a lot of our hymns today. I think a lot of people recognize that, that you can open up your hymnal and You can just pray the words of a hymn sometimes, and sometimes you'll find that very beneficial. And and these got used that way as well, and really they've been used that way for, at this point, some of them 3,000 years. Yeah, Yeah, we still use these as Christians. Now, in terms of Psalm 25, as we look at that text particularly today, the superscription, which is indeed a part of the text of the psalm, doesn't give us too much specific information and simply says, of David. Is there any background information, historical or otherwise, that we need to know as we look at Psalm 25 this morning? Well, I mentioned it before here. David wrote about half of these psalms, 76 of them, I think, if I'm counting correctly, so just over half. King David is Israel's second king after Saul, that God replaces Saul, takes the kingdom away from him, hands it to another. That would be 1008 BC, maybe, and and lasts for 40 years, David's reign over Israel, uh, and then his son Solomon will take the throne. So that's our time frame. A lot of David's Psalms are going to speak against, pray against, pray for deliverance from his enemies. Some of them have enough context where you can tell which enemy it is, but a lot of them don't, and, and leave it more more vague. David's a warrior king, which is the very reason God specifies uh, when he wants to go and build God a temple, a house in Jerusalem, and God says that he will not allow David to do it because David has been a man of bloodshed, whereas his son Solomon, whose name comes from the word shalom, will be a man of peace, and Solomon gets to build the temple. So 
David's got a lot of enemies, including Saul, including his own sons like Absalom, but also then the foreign enemies. The Philistines are probably the most prominent in his reign, but he he conquers a lot of different peoples too. Okay, so we're going to hear about David praying against his enemies or in the threat of his enemies, asking for deliverance, but in terms of the psalm itself, it doesn't seem there's one particular one in view. So perhaps this comes from the time he is king, and he's praying against one of those enemies. Perhaps it comes from the time maybe a little bit before he's king, and Saul is trying to to kill him. We don't have that exact context, which maybe helps us to, to appropriate it to ourselves a little bit more as we pray against the enemies that we face, sin, death, and the devil particularly. In terms of the, the structure of this psalm, what do, we, what do we see in terms of the structure of Psalm 25? This psalm is what we call an acrostic. For those of you familiar with poetry, that the, the acrostic is the, the, the kind of style of poetry that one line of verse will begin with one letter of the alphabet, and then you go to the next line, it begins with the next letter of the alphabet. So if you're writing an acrostic poem in English, you'd start with A, and your next verse would be a B, and then you'd start with C. You'd just move your way through. This psalm is one of those acrostic poems, and so David works his way through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and yeah, that's our, that's our base structure. Um, there are several psalms in the scriptures that are like this. I think probably most famed is Psalm 119, which gives each of the 22 letters eight verses, and so it ends up being 176 verses longer than any other book of scripture or chapter of scripture. Uh, the whole book of Lamentations works this way too, though. So Lamentations chapter one, two, and four are all 22 verses long for this reason, but chapter three triples it, so it's 66 verses along with each letter getting three verses to it. Right, and and the thing about acrostics, on, on the one hand, it, it's kind of cool, especially when you look at it in Hebrew, and you can see that as a, a beginning student of Hebrew, it was fun to look at the acrostics, and, oh, look, there's the alphabet, I, I've learned that. Uh, on the other hand, the matter of acrostics, I, I don't think is only just for poetry nerds, but there is... Oftentimes, maybe not always, but oftentimes a sense of completeness within the Psalms, I think, or within that poem of an acrostic. And I think Psalm 119 is a pretty good example of that. As you mentioned, you've got 22 stanzas, each eight verses long, with each letter of the Hebrew alphabet beginning each verse, so 176 verses. And I, I think one of the things that's communicated by that is a sense of completeness. This is a complete rejoicing in the law of the Lord, as Psalm 119 is. I'm not sure that that's the case in every acrostic, but I I do think that that's often there. So it's more than just, hey, this was a fun way to arrange a poem, but it can be used to communicate part of the theology that's going on. I'm not sure if that's the case in Psalm 25, but I've seen that in other acrostics. That's fair. Yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't know, know if you what... can see any theology in the acrostic here. I mean, there may not be. I'm not sure that I do. But I, yeah, I don't know that I do either. Um, and as a, as you said, a beginning student of Hebrew, I always end up wondering if you could translate these from Hebrew into English and keep the acrostic thing going. But that's right. Y- yeah. y- if you don't know it, you just don't. It's not there. You don't see it. That's right. That's right. And sometimes you know these rules are not hard and fast, so it, it's not always A, B, C, D, E, F, G, to use the English letters. Sometimes they may skip a letter, and, and they're allowed to do that. There is there's poetic license. I think that's the case here. But again, we're going to see this. This is the structure. 
of Psalm 25. Any more background information before we take a look at this text? I don't think I have any other. All right, so Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul, and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. That's our text for today. That is Psalm 25. Pastor Andrews, you know, the structure, as we said, is an acrostic. That's the primary way that this is organized. In terms of the, the psalm as a whole, I, I don't know that it's as easy to break this down into sections, but as you think about the psalm as a whole, what is David praying about? Just kind of give us a summary of what we've, we've heard David pray. David is putting his trust in the Lord. He's got these enemies again surrounding him. Who they are at the moment, we can't say. He feels their wrath. He feels their hatred upon him. But he's going to trust in the Lord. And he recognizes that the Lord is greater, that the Lord is merciful, that the Lord forgives. And he prays for that. He prays for that forgiveness. So I, you were mentioning it earlier before that it's, it's good for us to pray this psalm in the context of our enemies of sin, death, and the devil. And I think that part will certainly fit in very well with that, and as will the whole psalm in that way. All right. So David, as you said, puts his trust in the Lord throughout, and that's in fact the way that he starts. He, he lifts his soul to the Lord and says that he's putting his trust in the Lord. Take us into those just those first two verses. Yeah, I, I've never been all that confident in the distinction between what the body and the soul are. I know a lot of people make a lot of conversation about that, but I would simply say that right here at the open of the psalm, David is entrusting himself to God. Uh, like we would consider lifting up our prayer, our hands in prayer, or the Old Testament as they would do a wave offering to God. He's, he's lifting himself up. He's entrusting himself, giving himself over to the Lord, knowing that Yahweh will care for him. Yeah, I think, I think maybe the way to, to think about that opening verse, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, is not that he's saying, I lift up my soul as opposed to my body, 
but rather mm-hmm. I lift up myself, my whole being. And I think of the way Luther teaches us to pray in the morning and evening, that we would commend ourselves into the Lord's care. That sounds like what David is doing here. Now, so he, he said, and I mean, I think you see that very clearly throughout the psalm, that he is entrusting both the needs of his body and his soul in terms of physical, non-physical. Those are both being entrusted, and I think that's the way the open. Lord, I'm commending myself to you. I'm lifting myself up before you. You're the one in whom I trust. Let me not be put to shame. So talk about those two, two terms, trust, and then especially shame, because that's going to figure in pretty prominently throughout this psalm. Sure. So the word trust is really our word faith. A, a lot of Christians use the word faith frequently, probably more so than we do trust. But faith comes to us in English from the Latin word fides, which means trust. And so when you say, I, I have faith in Christ's promises, what you're saying is you trust Christ's promises. What he has said he will do, you trust that. And so David trusts God here that what the Lord has promised him the Lord will fulfill for him. And we trust in God for that very reason, that he is faithful. And we have seen that again and again, not only in Scripture, but also throughout history as he cares for his peoples. Now, in contrast, in the word shame, as you you said, shame is maybe described as that moment when the people around you end up mocking you because of whatever it was you were putting your hope in, well, it failed. It didn't come to pass. And so as a, just a person in the world today, if you put your hope in your job and then you lose your job, some of the people around you may shame you. Or I think probably peer pressure amongst our youth would be something that they could recognize quite quick, quickly as they, they experience failure and then get made fun of for it. Mm. Right, and that's... that theme of being mocked, that theme of being made fun of, that's present there in verse 2, along with, you know, let me not be put to shame, don't let my enemies exult over me. So there's kind of the, the flip side of that, those two things really go together. Indeed. And David, again, trusting God not to let him be put to shame. That is, don't let his hope show up empty. Why? Because his hope is in Yahweh. His hopes yeah. in the Lord. So for him to be put to shame would really ultimately mean that the Lord's promises have failed to be kept. So here's a prayer from David, Lord, be faithful to your promise. Yep. Keep me. Yeah, yeah that, that's exactly it. That, that's the basis for David's prayer, is he knows what God has promised to his people, and so he asks for God to keep that promise, and that is that promise is what's in view, I think, in verse 3, where David has this confident trust, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame, they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So talk about the way that, that David continues there in verse 3. It sometimes makes you wonder, as you read through a text like this, just how much David knew. This sounds like a last day kind of a statement here from him, that none who wait for you will be put to shame. Well, I mean, David's going to go to the grave. He doesn't know when. He doesn't know when that day will come, but his body will be in the the grave eventually, which one of the Acts sermons picks up on, right? His body is still in this tomb here. But yet David knows he won't be shamed. As we wait for the Lord, as we, we stay awake alert, uh, the Lord has promised to keep us, and he has promised to raise us up. And so David, 
sure seems to have a hope in that resurrection promise, even in this verse here. And I think that's where, finally, we, we need to understand this verse being fulfilled, that even if there is shame for us in this life, that it seems as if the wicked prosper right now and the righteous don't, which is a theme that comes up in many other psalms, we do know that on the last day these things will be made plain, that we will be vindicated, our trust in the Lord will be proved right, He will keep His promise on that day, and those who have not put their trust in the promises of the Lord, they will be shamed. Now, I do think, I mean, again, we don't know exactly when in David's life he's praying this and the precise situation. There's nothing wrong with him praying it for an earthly situation, asking for deliverance from his earthly enemies now, but there is also that resurrection reality that we always need to keep in mind with this. Talk talk more about how the flip side is true, then. If we are not put to shame on the last day, what's the shame of those who are wantonly treacherous in the second half of this verse? The hopes of this world amount to nothing. So, you know, I was digging into those those wantonly treacherous words and and seeing what they they're getting at in in the Hebrew, and really, it's about faithlessness and emptiness. Mm. So, it's talking about those who have lived their lives chasing after the things that don't endure. So, maybe I mentioned it earlier. You can set your hope on your career, and so you you target the top of the, the food chain, and you get there. And you celebrate, okay, but what happens on the last day? If you have not Christ, it all disappears. It was all meaningless. It was all for naught. And so the the world's ways lead to death. They lead only to death. Even the good works that, that the unbeliever would seek to do, like trying to be kind or generous, their ways don't build up. They don't edify, they don't point to Jesus, and so those things don't endure. So on the last day, they will be shamed, they will be ashamed. I guess ashamed is our feeling, whereas shame is an action, perhaps mm. would be a way to describe that difference. Mm. And so lest David would fall into the path of those who are wantonly treacherous, who willfully scorn the teaching of the Lord, who have no regard for his word, then he, he asks the Lord to help him. I do think verses 4 and 5 seem to go together. What is David praying when he says, make me to know your ways, teach me your paths? What is he asking for? He's asking for the Lord to fill him, uh, really, to, to not allow David to just follow David's own sinful heart. So I remember Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, renew a right spirit within me. And David is seeking the Lord to be his guide, and to, to teach him the ways that are good and right and, and just and, and really don't lead to shame. If we just said that that's the, the outcome for the world, I, I don't want that for me. So, Lord, show me what is good. Talk more about the image that is used here with ways, paths, the idea of being led in verse 5. This is a theme we see elsewhere in the Psalms and throughout Scripture. Talk more about that theme. Yeah, that theme does show up quite a bit. Psalm 119, for example, 105, I think is the verse there. Your word is a a light to my feet, a lamp to my path. So you've got the picture of a way or a path. I think we would probably make those synonymous as we would discuss them, but so emphasis here to say it twice, the idea of having roads that you can go down. And so you've got you can go to the right, or you can turn and you can go to the left when you come to your, to your fork in the road. Which way are you going to go? God knows the way that leads to life, and only he knows the way that leads to life. So show me that way. 
And as, as Christians are listening to this, I, I would hope that you, you would hear in that the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 14, verse 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I believe it's based on the John 14 passage that the Christians took their first name, which was the way. Um, it clearly connects back here to this verse, but I, I would guess it's more from John than it is from Psalm 25. Sure. I mean, and again, as you pointed out, the theme of the way, that image is common throughout the Psalter. It's in Psalm 1. We looked at that previously here on Sharper Iron, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That that same idea is present throughout the Scriptures, picked up here in Psalm 25. And I think you're exactly right to make that connection to Jesus, to the early Church, using this and knowing the way of the Lord. So how does God accomplish this? How does He make His way known? How does He teach us His paths? How does He lead us in this truth? Through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit then working through word and sacrament. So we would certainly talk about hearing God's word, reading God's word, being in the word, Colossians 3 telling us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We think of the parental task as God has instructed fathers to teach the faith to their their children after them. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, Exodus 12, 13 would fit that. Again, sacrament, so baptism, as the Lord uh, puts his spirit into us and creates that faith in our hearts to then guide us. And then just, again, being in God's word, which all points us to Christ. Yeah. Now, at the end of verse 5, David says, For you I wait all the day long. How does, how does waiting figure into what we've been talking about here in Psalm 25? The promises don't always come quickly, right? I mean, what's the promise that as Christians we wait for now? That Jesus in the book of Revelation, I think three times in the last chapter, promises that he's coming soon. It's been almost 2,000 years. I mean, we, we could party that in a couple of years. Um, that's a long time for us. But he calls us to be faithful. He calls us to wait patiently. He calls us to remain awake, which is to more so say stay alert than it is actually not close your eyelids. But the Lord actually expects that we will put our trust in him. And even though it may not show up the way we want it to or as quickly as we want it to, the Lord is faithful and he does keep his promises. So we wait and think of the prayer, the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And there are days where you hunger, and that does happen in this broken world, but the Lord is still faithful. We think of Lamentations chapter 3, where we are told that God's mercies are new every morning. And, and so we, we do, we keep waiting, and the Lord gives us another day, and he continues to make his sun rise. He continues to even send the rain both on the just and the unjust alike, for he is good. Yeah, that, that waiting and that patience of the Christian life is an exercise of faith, because we know what the Lord has said, we know what he promises to do, but we don't always receive it at the moment we think it will come. And so the, the patience, the waiting, is an exercise of our faith in him, knowing that although he has not yet done what he said he would, he will do it. And so what do we do while we wait? We listen to his word. We continue to live according to his word. Because that time of of waiting and patience can be a time of 
great temptation. Are we there yet? No. <laughs> so what do we do in the meantime? Well, do we do we complain? Do we grumble? Do we seek a different way, one that that seems like it'll get us there quicker or have better results? Those are the temptations. And so it's especially in the time of waiting and patience that we we do need to pray and that we need the Lord's teaching all the more, because that's when the, the devil's going to come and attack us and say, look, God's not keeping his promises. Try something different. And so it is during those times of waiting and patience, especially, that we need this prayer. Yeah. Did did God really say, right? Did, did he really say he was going to forgive you? Did he really say he was going to come back? Did he really say he was going to raise you from the dead? You can you can do this yourself. Um, certainly, yeah, the, the challenges are there. Um, and I think one of the challenges we face in being taught the ways of God is uh, distraction. Um, we have so many distractions all around us that would seek to to take our mind and our eyes and our hearts off of Christ on just the things that pleasure the body or the soul in the moment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The, the distractions there just only ramp up these temptations that we face, because when when we're distracted from the Word of God, then when the temptation comes, we don't have that foundation on which to build. We don't have the the place to go for strength. Instead, we're looking all around us elsewhere, and we're not as ready to face that temptation with faith in the one who has made his promise and who will, in fact, keep his promise. So yeah, watch out for those distractions, dear Christian. Look instead to the Word of God. Ask him to lead you in his Word, for there is truth and there is strength as you wait for him to keep his promises, which, in fact, he will. We're going to go ahead and take our break right there. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO this morning. We're talking to Pastor Steve Andrews about Psalm 25. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 7th. We're studying Psalm 25 with Pastor Steve Andrews. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we had looked at verse 5. Verses 6 and 7, then, I think go together, because on the one hand, David asks God to remember one thing and then not to remember something else. Talk to us about what David asks the Lord to remember in verse 6. So again, definition of words here, he, he remember your mercy, remember your steadfast love. I like to define God's mercy as when we don't get what we deserve. So I, I'm a sinner, and, and David's going to express that here himself in just a few verses. What does he deserve from God? He deserves the punishment of sin is death. He deserves uh, condemnation for sin to go to hell. And so he prays for God to be merciful, to not give him those things that he has rightly earned. 
but instead to remember also his steadfast love, which is probably one of the hardest Hebrew words, in my opinion, to translate into English, like a one-for-one word translation. ESV loves to go with steadfast love, and it's the Hebrew word hesed, unconditional love, that agape Greek word might be a good one. Um, It's God's faithfulness that he will not turn back. He will not go against his word. He will not undo what he has promised. He remains faithful no matter what. And so kind of seems weird maybe for the the English reader to hear David pray, remember this, when we talk about God's not going to forget this anyway. Uh, So it might be a good thing to, to ponder for just a moment that the word remember in scripture often means simply to bring it to mind again, rather than so much Oh, God forgot, um, but revisit this idea. Right, and, and act upon it, I think, is the other part that's Ooh, often good. there yeah. present. Yeah, not just not just bring it to mind, but do something. Act in this way as you have before. And I think that's the other part of this verse that's key. This mercy of the Lord and his steadfast love, his faithfulness and loyalty, those things have been from of old, since well before David was ever around. Yeah, I well before creation was around. Uh, The Lord was already merciful or he would not have made us. He was already faithful or he would not have have made this creation knowing what we would do. Mm. Right. So so call these things to mind and act upon them, dear Lord, your mercy, your steadfast love, which have been there since before the foundation of the world. On the other hand, do not call to mind, do not act upon these things that have, have been from my youth. Talk about what the Lord or what David asked the Lord not to remember in verse 7. I like your the idea here of remember being connected to act upon. So if God acts upon my sins, I'm in trouble. So David praying that the Lord would not remember, he would not act upon his sins. It is David pleading to the Lord to forgive him here in this text. He wants instead to be remembered by the Lord's love. Uh, so we would think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so we remember, we see the idea that Christ loves us, gave himself for us, and now we can wear the robe of his righteousness. Uh, We are covered by the blood of Christ, covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that's where David's prayer is going. I mean, talk about a plea for forgiveness in the Old Testament, a trust that there is forgiveness even then. That's right. Yeah. And, and so remember not the sins of my youth. I do think when you put that in the context of what we were talking about in verses four and five, that David is asking for the Lord to lead him according to his word, that David recognizes in his younger days, he didn't always walk in the way of the Lord. And so he asks the Lord, don't remember those sins. Don't act upon me according to those sins. Rather, remember me, act upon me, according to your steadfast love for the sake of your goodness. More gospel, especially there at the second half of verse 7. Yeah, and and the way you phrase that there reminds me of Paul's writing to Colossians, where he talks about how we have been transferred from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So David, yes, his past is one thing, but he's transferred into this new kingdom. Just as you and I, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, to use Ephesians 2, and, and now Christ has made us alive. So David's recognizing the need for, well, he's repenting here himself, true, but he's recognizing the need for the Lord to be the one who acts 
upon that and, and saves him. Talk more about the reason that he asks the Lord to act for the the sake of his goodness, according to his steadfast love, that Kessid word again. For the sake of. It reminds me when I hear those words of the absolution, as we, we confess our sins together in worship, and then you get to hear your pastor week in and week out say that Almighty God, in his mercy, has given his Son to die for you, and for his sake, forgives you of all your sins. Jesus Christ already died on the cross. He already paid the price for your sins, all of them. Why would he go back on it now? If you say, forgive me, and Jesus says, meh, not in the mood today, he just undid the entirety of his sacrifice. And so we, we plead to God for forgiveness for the sake of Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice would not be in vain. I think David's got the same kind of angle here, for the sake of your goodness, yeah. O Yahweh. So he's recognizing that God is good. And that's a very prominent Old Testament word. Think of creation, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and how often that word gets used there. God is good. And if he abandons his people, if he doesn't keep his promises, would anyone call him good? Yeah, I might, with that word goodness, my mind went to the, the question that Jesus has asked when he's called good teacher, mm-hmm. what must I do to be saved or to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And it truly is in Jesus, in his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection on the third day, that we do see the goodness of God at work. And it is on that basis that David prays for forgiveness. I, I do think you see David reflecting on his youth, recognizing his sins, and he has a desire to turn from them according to God's word, but he doesn't ask God to forgive him because he's somehow turned his life around. He asks God to forgive him for the sake of God's own goodness, and it is that throwing himself on God's mercy and grace that we still do today, as you said, in the confession of sins, and it's on that basis of God's goodness that the pastor pronounces the absolution, and truly we receive it, not because we've turned our life around, though we do have the desire to do that, we receive that forgiveness because God gives it in his grace. Yeah, and and so doing, he places us on the new path. He that's has right. placed us on the new path. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so we ask, Lord, lead us in that path as David has done. The psalm continues then in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. So more of that way, path imagery in these verses, Pastor Andrews, help us into more of what is being taught in verses 8 to 10. Well, we just talked about the Lord being good. Now he's also declared by David to be upright. Uh, So he is righteous is a common phrase in the Psalms. Uh, He does what is right. He does what is just. There is no error or sin in his ways. And, and David links that. He says, therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. So because God is good, because God is uprighteous, he teaches the way of salvation. That reminded me of Revelation 5, as you've got John seeing the vision of, of heaven and seeing the Lord's throne. And there's this scroll that no one can open. And so John starts to weep because he, he knows these, this thing's important, but he doesn't understand and nobody can make him understand. And then there's one who is worthy, uh, Jesus, the, the lamb who has been slain but yet lives. 
and Jesus unseals the scroll. And that scroll is God's good news of how he would save his people, which has been made fully known to us in and through Jesus Christ. And so in that goodness of God, in that uprightness, he shows us sinners the way because he does not want to see us perish, um, which very well said in First uh, Timothy 2, 4, that God does not desire that, uh, well, God does desire for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Mm. Talk about the humility that David describes in verse 9. He leads the humble. He teaches the humble. I think in that sense, we could simply say that it is is the humble that can be taught. So you think of, of the prideful, and that's very much so our own culture. Most of the conversations you might have with other people on social media, there there's no teaching that can be done. Right, um, we are so stuck in our ways, and I'll say we. It's not always just other people that we're trying to engage with. We are so stubborn in our ways that even when something turns out to be true or good or better, we would rather stick to the the old way of whatever we have. Um, and so this this picture here, uh, David talking about the humble. That's the one who recognizes, I'm a sinner. I I don't know the way. And if I keep going on my own path, it's just leading to death. So, Lord, teach me, which David's already declared uh, a few verses before. Yeah, that's right. And David then in verse 10 acknowledges that the Lord's way, his paths are steadfast love and faithfulness, and they are for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Tell us about verse 10. Calling upon that same love and faithfulness from before, God's way is good. God's way leads to life. We as Lutherans might struggle with the for those who keep his covenant kind of language. Uh, This is very much, though, an exhortation all over the Old Testament, especially in the, the, the Pentateuch, those first five books. As God is king and Israel is directly his people, and they are called upon to follow and obey his laws in order to live in the land that he has promised to give them. Uh, So the land of the Canaanites, uh, which they just call the promised land eventually, and then Israel takes the name, they failed. And so as God is great, as God is good, as he is upright, he would continue to instruct even us sinners, sinners like David, sinners like myself, uh, sinners like all of us, as we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hmm. Now, as David continues then in verse 11, he again acknowledges his sin, and this time he, he prays similarly, but there's maybe a, a, a new wrinkle or something that's added, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Talk about, again, we've got that for your sake, but it's for your name's sake in verse 11. Talk more about that. Yeah, before we had for the sake of his goodness. So what is what is the name of God? Uh, we've got Certainly the name of God in terms of the literal what is it, and it's right here, David uses the divine name Yahweh, which uh, is kind of a Hebrew response. God said in Exodus 3, I am who I am, and then he taught Moses the response. As his people, we say Yahweh, which is basically Hebrew for he is. So there is that, um, which is picked up in Jesus' name. He will save his people from their sins, Jesus meaning Yahweh saves but it's also for how people view the name, right? And so 
as the Lord does these things or doesn't do these things, it will impact how the world will look at the Lord. God keeps his promises and he delivers the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And part of it is so that the Egyptians will know that Yahweh alone is God and that they will also seek to follow him. And then when they come out and God is about to blot them out because of the golden calf, Moses' response is basically to point to all the nations around and say, what will all the other people think? So for the sake of your name, uh, God, this is David's prayer that the Lord would, would uphold himself so that the name of Jesus will be praised among all nations. That's right. Yeah, God's concerned about his reputation. He, David, I think he did, he learned to pray this from Moses, and, and Ezekiel learns to pray the same way. The Lord speaks this way. I think it's in Ezekiel chapter 36, where he talks about he's going to deliver his people, and he's going to do it for the sake of his reputation, for the sake of his name, because he wants to be known as the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And so David prays on that basis, as we still do today. Now, in verses 12 and 13, we hear about the man who fears the Lord. Talk to us about this concept of the fear of the Lord and then what it entails here in Psalm 25. Fear is a word that I think in the church today we don't like. We don't like to use that word. We do have Matthew 10 where Jesus tells us to fear only the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, and by that he's referring to basically judgment day and to what God can alone can do that we shouldn't fear the devil even because he doesn't have that authority. He can't do that. Um, So we do have scriptural instruction in the Old and the New Testament alike to fear God. It's not just respect. I I know we talk about it that way a lot. Both Hebrew and Greek have words for respect that they could use and they, they don't. So fear, I like to look at fear here as its connection to faith. They're both about trust. So we talked about that earlier with faith that To have faith in God's promises is to trust those promises. When you fear something, you have trust in that thing. So if you fear cancer, it's because you trust that cancer has a certain amount of power to impact you, overcome you, whatever it may be. If you fear, so whatever, death, starvation, um, shame, whatever it is, it's because of that. And so the fear of Yahweh is, again, a trust in Yahweh. And as we see with David here pleading about his sins, there is a fear of Yahweh. Part of, part of our repentance is in, is in fear, right? We, if we didn't fear God's holiness, if we didn't fear his power, we wouldn't care that we were sinners. We would just say, oh, I can do whatever I want, which a lot of the world does anyway because they don't fear him. And so fear can bring us to repentance before a holy God who judges sin. Mm. That's right. Yeah, and and we have this, as you said, in the Old and New Testaments, and we have it catechetically. We should fear and love God so that, as each of the commandments begins the meaning in Luther's small catechism, this is important. And, And rightly understood, the fear, if I can say it this way, the fear of the Lord is not something to be feared. Because the true fear of the Lord actually takes away fear. That's where, where Jesus goes in Matthew 10. I think you know, we should not be afraid of speaking this way because it, it actually is a, a comforting thing when it's all said and done. Yeah, it is. And when you think about it in the big picture of things, the only one we are to fear is Jesus. 
And so that means all other fears are driven away because Christ is stronger than the devil. Christ is stronger than cancer. Christ is stronger than everything. And so when you get to that point, well, then you remember his promises. And what has he promised? Your sins are forgiven. You will be raised again. You have life in his name. You will live with him forevermore. And so Jesus comes to his disciples when they're terrified in John chapter 20, and he says it three times, peace be with you. So as we come before the Lord in fear, we hear those, those same words. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep us moving here because we're, we're running a little short on time, Pastor Andrews. I want to talk about, in connection to this, we've got the fear of the Lord and the blessing that God promises. There's a temporal blessing, no doubt, but also an eternal blessing. But in connection with that, we have the friendship of the Lord in verse 14, and it is for those who fear him. So talk to us about the friendship of the Lord. It's not a word we see very often. Uh, there's a few guys in the Old Testament it's mentioned with, Moses, Abraham. Jesus is accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners when you get to the Gospels. But Jesus is described here as friend, right? I, I think maybe the John 15 text would be our, our go-to. As Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So we do, we have a friendship with our Lord. There's a fear, there's a friendship, there's a faith. It's a little bit all over the place, but all of it. Yeah, it, and it, it does all very much go together here in Psalm 25 and throughout the scriptures. Now, verses 15 and 16 speak about which way people are looking. So verse 15, David says, my eyes are always toward the Lord. And then in verse 16, he asked the Lord, turn toward me. So talk about this, the way that the faithful look to the Lord and then the way that he turns toward them. To look at is essentially the picture of provision. And so as David looks to the Lord, he's like the baby bird looking to the mom that's going to provide the meal, right? He, he's looking to the source of where his help comes from. And as the Lord then looks to us, he doesn't need our help, but he provides the help. So I, I like to think of the, the benediction that most of our, our churches use at the end of service from Numbers chapter 6, where Aaron is taught to say to the whole church, to the whole congregation, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give to you his peace. So the Lord make his face shine on you. The Lord look upon you. When God looks upon us, it's that remember thing from before. He, he remembers, he acts upon his promises. Hmm. Yeah. Now what about the last part of verse 16? Sometimes we see these things in the Psalms and they, they catch us a little bit off guard. David says he's lonely and afflicted. That doesn't sound like a pious way to pray. Loneliness is one, I mean, we can't speak to the context again. So is he truly alone or is this just his own brokenness, right? Really, none of us are ever alone. We have the promise that Jesus Christ is always with us, and yet we do. We find ourselves feeling alone. And David's in that spot right here. It's in God's holy word. The Spirit has inspired this. Here's a prayer for you. If you're feeling alone in the moment, pray this. 
right? Pray the Psalms, certainly. And then double back to Christ's promises where he has promised to be with you always to the end of the age in Matthew 28, verse 20. Uh, and, and know that, that loneliness is a, a lie from the devil meant to divide and separate. Our feelings are good because they're God-given, but our feelings are also broken. Hmm. Sure, and, and we want to put our feelings in service of the Word of Christ, which is why I think when, when you feel alone, the best thing to do is pray. Because if you don't, then the devil will work his, his temptations against you and make you think that perhaps you actually are alone. But when you cry out in your loneliness to the Lord, just in that very act of crying out, the Lord begins to remind you, you're not alone, that, I, that he is in fact with you. And so the, the best thing to do with those very feelings and putting them in service of the Lord is praying about them and, and giving them to him so that he would remind you the truth in his word. So let's, let's keep moving. We want to finish this psalm, Pastor Andrews. We are now in verses 17 and following. David again begins to describe the distress, the trouble that he's feeling. Again, without knowing precisely what's going on in his life, he talks about troubles in his heart. He talks about affliction. He talks about foes and their hatred. Verses 17 to 19, give us some of the, the details David reveals there. Well, it's a lot like what we just read with 16. I'll start with this. Uh, we can pray these. Yeah. Hey, we can pray the whole psalm, but we, since we don't know the context, we, we can relate to this. Uh, our afflictions, our troubles, knowing our sins, feeling the, the hatred of enemies around us. We all, we all live through those moments and feel those things. David's sin has multiplied. He has sinned many times, and that is bubbling up. It's overcoming him, and he's crying out for God to rescue him, to deliver him out of that. And that, that's been the gist of this whole, whole psalm, this whole prayer, is a prayer for the Lord to save, a prayer for the Lord to rescue, a prayer for forgiveness. Clear as day in the Old Testament, uh, just as it is for us in the New Testament, the promise of God to send a Savior who would save us from sin goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Uh, it's repeated very clearly to King David in 2 Samuel 7, whether that's before or after this psalm, I don't know, but he'll hear those words from God. Now, again, turning to John 15, what Jesus said, uh, I think is a, a good prayer for this as he prays to the Father. Uh, but the disciples in, in hearing of the context of Monday Thursday hear these words, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so whatever foes or enemies we have, and we feel that hatred today as David did, know that the Lord is with you. Know that the Lord loves you and he has overcome all of our enemies. And in that confidence, David then concludes his prayer, verses 20 to 22. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. You see there at the very end how David's prayer not only includes himself, but the whole people of God in Christ Jesus. We've got about two minutes here, Pastor Andrews. Take us into these final verses. Help us to wrap things up on Psalm 25 this morning. Guard my soul. Guard, watch, keep, observe, deliver is the last word here. 
that the Lord would hear David's prayer, that he would hear our prayer, and he would fight on our behalf. And that's precisely what he does. So as we go to 22, redeem Israel, buy them back, buy them back from sin, buy them back from death, buy them back from the devil. And again, this is exactly what the Lord has done as he sent his son, Jesus Christ, for you, to you, to redeem you from your enemies, to buy you back to himself. And he has. And so David trusts in God's promises. He has asked God to guide him. He's asked God to teach him, to help him live in that word. And he ends here by praying that the Lord would use that word to uphold him and to uphold the whole church. Uh, So a wonderful, again, prayer for us too, that the Lord would teach us his ways, help us to know that he has, through that word, redeemed us and is continuing to uphold us. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. He has been helping us today to study Psalm 25. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. An acrostic poem, an acrostic prayer here in Psalm 25 that really does cover a full range of Christian prayer. Lord, to you I lift up myself. I trust in you. Fulfill your promises, dear Lord. Teach me your ways. Forgive me my sins. Do not let my enemies triumph over me, but instead give deliverance, dear Lord. The full range of Christian prayer here, and all fulfilled in Christ Jesus our Lord, who has trusted in God perfectly, who has given his life in place of ours on the cross, and who has risen from the grave on the third day to promise us resurrection on the last day. Lord Jesus, come quickly, fulfill your promise. Let us not be put to shame, but let us see the fulfillment of all that you have promised on the last day. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Psalm 25, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.